So we are finishing out the book of First Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 5 uh, this morning. And if you remember, uh, last September we met in the park, at Pioneer Park, a couple times, and that's where about the time we began this book. And if you remember, and I know you remember all these sermons word for word, you'll remember uh, that right at the beginning there, I, I kind of did an overview of the book, and I spoke about prayer in particular and pointed out that this is really a book that is bookended with prayers, and it has prayer running throughout. In fact, you could look at the first couple chapters and see that they are, they are really a lengthy prayer and a conversation with God and with others at the same time from Paul and his companions. So this, this letter, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, it begins in prayer. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And so it begins in prayer, it's bathed in prayer, and, and we find it ending in prayer, not surprisingly. And, and so, so Paul begins with these words here in 1 Thessalonians 1 that are words of thanksgiving for this church in Thessalonica. And these words of thanksgiving are directed to God for what he's doing. And at the end of, the end of this book, we find a prayer of blessing. He's asking blessing upon these people who he's already thanked God for. And again, this prayer is directed to God. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And as you consider this really short prayer, I want to pay, I want you to pay attention to its content and to its focus. And you'll notice, first of all, perhaps, that it may not be the kind of prayer that you're used to praying. It may not be the kind of prayer that you're used to being heard, heard, heard being prayed. Okay, so, so I can only speak really from my own experience, but if I, if I take this prayer and I superimpose it on my prayers, I'm not sure how much it lines up. And you might do the same and go like, how much does my prayer line up with these words here? Just the average prayer that I pray, would there even be a resemblance and a connection between the two? And my, my purpose in saying this isn't to shame us, but to make us aware of an area where we can all grow, where we can better align ourselves with God's heart for us. With God's heart for us and God's heart for others as well. Because when we pray, what we're actually doing is we're asking the God of the universe, the God who didn't just make you but made everything from quarks to galaxies, who chooses to call himself Father and call us sons and daughters. That's who we're talking to. We're saying, God, we're asking God to keep his promises. God, keep your promises. Fulfill your word. Do what you said you're going to do for our good and for your glory. So, so when we pray, we're invoking this incredible privilege as God's children. And those for whom we pray then, when we pray, receive what is best for them, and God gets the glory. So we invoke privilege. The people we pray for receive what is best for them, and God gets the glory. That's what prayer is. So 
when I think about what prayer is, the big question that comes up in my mind then is, if I'm praying for, for God's glory, but for the good of other people, what is the best thing for the people for whom I'm praying? What should I be praying for them? Now, to put this all in context, we have to step back and look at who they are addressing here in verse 23, where it says, Now may the God of peace. The prayer begins by addressing God as the God of peace. This isn't, this isn't a title, or this is a title that's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And I'll give you four out of five of those times right here. Romans 15, 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Look for a pattern here. The very next chapter, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. What have you learned and received and heard? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, this title, used just a few times, mostly by Paul, is mainly used when he is his giving or praying blessings or benedictions over people. And it's, it's kind of a way of saying, like, just a general peace be with you. But, but instead of this kind of abstract idea, or a, I, I, just, I just hope that you have a vague sense of peace over you, what he's actually praying for them is the very presence of God. Notice how each of these verses include the phrase, with you. So for the God of peace himself to be with you, doing his work, is the ultimate blessing that we can pray for one another. We pray for each other. I pray that God would be with them. It might be a prayer like this, that God, would you be present for all that we need in the fullness of all that you are? Because he is the God of peace. And you'll notice up there that I didn't put the God of peace. I put the God of shalom which is really the concept that's behind this title for a Jewish person like Paul. He would have been thinking of this Hebrew concept of shalom. And the Hebrew word shalom is most often translated in, to peace in, in the English. But it has, has a much broader range of meaning than we usually think of when we think of peace. When we think of peace, we might think of the absence of warfare, the absence of conflict. We might think of relational reconciliation, or we may just kind of simply think of a psychological or an emotional state that I'm at peace. Everything's at peace. Nothing is, is bothering me. I'm in a state of, of rest, but it's more than that. Theologian uh, Neil Plantinga puts it this way. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. That's just even just that's just a little picture of what shalom is. But it's this idea of, of the ideal world, the way things ought to be. And fundamentally, shalom is an attribute of God Himself. When you think of God, you think of someone who is whole, 
who is complete in all that he is, who is utterly flourishing and perfect and delighted. And all of these things are perfectly exemplified in God's character and in his person. So God is the God of shalom in himself, but he's also the God who works shalom in the world. He's the one who creates wholeness and completeness and peace. He is the giver of peace. In the scriptures, shalom is often deeply connected with the promise and the hope of its fulfillment in the messianic kingdom, in the future kingdom of God's king, the Messiah, a kingdom in which peace reigns because there's relational harmony on a horizontal level between humans and and other humans, between humans and the creation. And there's peace and harmony and rightness and completeness and flourishing on a vertical level between humanity and God. In In the end, wholeness or completeness or shalom will finally be the order and the shape of the world. It's God's intention for his creation is shalom. And he is the God of shalom, the God of peace. He creates, he he is shalom, he creates shalom, but neither of these concepts is actually primary here in in 1 Thessalonians 5 because God also works not just a a shalom for the entire creation, but a, a personal, individual shalom or wholeness for each of us. The God of peace is in the business of finding broken people who are coming apart at the seams and intimately stitching them back together. Like a mosaic, taking these broken pieces of your life and making them into something whole and beautiful and flourishing. So when we consider this shalom, this this idea of peace and wholeness, that it reflects God's nature, it reflects his intentions for the world, and for each of us, then this final prayer, this prayer of blessing in 1 Thessalonians 5 makes better sense. Now may the God of peace, read it with me, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make your, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's these three phrases, sanctify you completely, whole spirit and soul and body, and be kept blameless. And in those three phrases, we hear echoes of shalom, of of completeness, of wholeness, of God's heart and his, his being. And the goal of this prayer is that God would work that shalom, that wholeness, in the individual lives of these believers. So to put it another way, this prayer is focused on on the God of shalom forming these believers into people of shalom. The God of peace making for himself a people of peace. Or or as the book of James puts it in James chapter 1 verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or the words of Eugene Peterson who paraphrase the Bible in the popular translation, the message, this very verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Here's how he puts it. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole and put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. 
I love how he puts it, holy and whole. That's who God is. He is holy. He's completely other. He's perfect and he's whole. And that is what he envisions for this world and his intentions. The work that he is actually doing in his people as he takes all of our broken pieces and creates a beautiful mosaic, a masterpiece from them. And when this happens, God is seen and reflected in the lives of those who love him. And that's where he gets the glory. So being sanctified, there you have that, that he would sanctify you completely. That's just a fancy word for being made holy and whole. It's the, it's the great goal of the Christian life. And so it's the great prayer and the hope of, of spiritual fathers and mothers for their spiritual children that they would be whole. And as Jenny read from Philippians 1 earlier, verse 6 says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the work that God is doing, that he has promised to do here in first. Uh, or excuse me, in Philippians 1.6, and when we pray, we're simply asking him to keep that promise for others. And he makes us whole, not just parts of us, but all of us. So this, this wholeness that God, that God desires for us encompasses every part of who we are. So Paul puts it here as spirit, soul, and body. And I don't think Paul's arguing here that we are made up of three parts, and, and making a theology of that. What he's saying is that, that it encompasses our entire person. It's not enough for God to win just one part of us, to just transform our mind or our soul or our spirit or our body. He must have all of us. He wants it all because he made it all. He wants all of you because he made all of you. He doesn't want to just compartmentalize our lives, but lay claim to a lordship over every part of our lives. Because if God only sanctified part of us, then in the end, we're going to be very unwhole people after all, wouldn't we? We are multifaceted people. Spirit, soul, body, strength, mind, all of these things, and every piece of us, every part of us is up for redemption. We have a whole God who gives us a whole gospel to make us whole people, spirit, soul, and body. Now, the sanctification or being made whole is, is further defined here in this verse as being kept blameless. May, he, may you be kept blameless. Melissa read Psalm 24 to you earlier, and I asked her to read it for this reason because it fits in here. Who shall ascend? Put it up here quickly, not quickly. Psalm 24, 3 through 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And if you're anything like me, you hear these verses and you begin to lose hope. Who shall climb up God's mountain? Which one of us shall stand in God's holy presence in his holy place? Well, of course, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. But surely that doesn't describe me. 
Does that describe you? I mean, it's unrealistic at best, right? It's disheartening at worst because as much as we've all tried, none of us has clean hands. None of us has a pure heart. We all know that we are sinners. We know that we're broken. And, and, and try what we may, as, as hard as we've tried, we can't cover up all the cracks, all the fissures in our lives and put everything back together again. We can't do it. But note carefully in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that what Paul actually says is in the passive voice. He says, be that you may be kept blameless. It doesn't say, hey, work really hard to be blameless. Make sure that you're doing everything to be blameless. It says, be kept blameless. In other words, someone else is doing the heavy lifting, right? Someone else is, is bringing this blamelessness. It's not, it's not mainly something that you or I do. It's something that is being done to us. May you be kept blameless. See, blamelessness is a concept we've encountered a couple times already in this letter back in chapter 2, verse 10, and then again in chapter 3, verse 13. And it's a word that was used in the ancient world for funeral eulogies or obituaries, kind of the, the last words, looking back in remembrance on someone's life and saying, this person lived a blameless life. But if you've ever been to a funeral, you know that we can sometimes be overly optimistic about those who have gone ahead of us. We can uh, impute to them things that may or may not have really been true for us, but that, for them, but that's not really what's happening here. This prayer is that on the last day, when we face God, and the measure of our entire life is taken. And our ultimate obituary is written, if you will. That on that day, when we stand before God, he will write our obituary. And he will look over everything from the beginning of our life to the end. Every act, every thought, every word, every relationship, everything. And he will take out his sheet to write the obituary. And he will write one word and it will say, blameless. That's what it will say. That God would look at everything and not have to come up with something nice to say about us, but that he would see a clean hands and a pure heart, not because we are blameless in ourselves, but because Jesus has been blameless for us. So we continue to read in Psalm chapter 24, verse 5, that he, this person who would stand in the presence of the Lord, will receive blessing from the Lord and will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. Righteousness is a gift. It's something that God gives us, and God is the only one who, through the gospel, can give us righteousness, who can make us blameless, who can keep us blameless until the end. So on that last day, when you stand before God, will you be found blameless? And if you answer that question by automatically taking an inventory of your life and counting up all the good things you've done, 
and all the bad things that you haven't done. I haven't cheated on my taxes, haven't cheated on my wife, I've been doing good. I, I treat people nicely and I give. If that's how you answer the question, then I'm afraid that in the end you will find yourselves not only with dirty hands, but with empty hands. Because the only way to answer this question, will you be found blameless on that day with a resounding yes, is to say something like this. My only hope at his coming, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the righteousness and blamelessness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if you look anywhere else for your righteousness or for your blamelessness, then there's no hope for you. So I encourage you. I exhort you. I urge you. I would even plead with you this morning to place your faith and your hope in Jesus alone for your righteousness and your blamelessness. Come to him for your salvation. I love how this prayer ends in verse 24 with just utter confidence in God's promise. So we're going to call on God to keep his promises for us and for those we're praying for. And we have an utter confidence that he will keep his promises. Verse 24. It's not a verse where Paul is praying, hey, you got this, guys. Go live your best life now. You can do it. Cheerleading and, and optimism. It's an optimism that is based on and fully anchored in God. And it, it combines God's intention for us. He who calls us and with his character, he is faithful. He who called us is faithful. It adds those two things together and comes up with the perfect equation, an untouchable product. He will surely do it. What will he do? Well, he will sanctify you completely. He will make you whole and holy. He will keep you blameless to the end and for eternity. So it's an unspeakable blessing for us that God promise to do what we would never have hoped to accomplish in our own strength. He has promised this thing that we've read already, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The day of Jesus Christ, why he is faithful, he will do it. He will make you whole and holy, he will keep you blameless until that day when he receives you into his kingdoms. And friends, this is truly the essence of faith, isn't it? Trusting Christ to do and accomplish for us what we could never do or accomplish for ourselves. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Pick up that verse and make it a memory verse. It's really easy to memorize. It's like two phrases. Make it your memory verse for this week. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, just as Paul has prayed for them, he expects that they will pray for him too. So verse 25, brothers, pray for us. And this is, this is just a simple component, a simple privilege, a simple responsibility of what it means to be in community with other believers that we would be people who pray for each other, that we would come to the Father and, and commend one another to him. And I'm positive that what these apostles were asking the church to pray for was the same thing that they had just prayed for them for, that, that the God of peace would sanctify them and complete them and make them whole and bring them to the last day 
blameless. And as I said at the beginning of the sermon, when we pray, we're asking God to keep his promises. We're asking him to keep his promises for our good and for his glory. So when we pray, we invoke the privilege of children. And those for whom we pray receive what is best for them, and God ultimately gets the glory. So the picture here is is a wonderful picture that I would invite you into more and more fully, that we can actually partner with God in bringing out the holiness and wholeness in the lives of others. You can pray for your brothers and sisters that they would be more and more like Jesus every day. You can pray for the people around you that they will stand before Jesus one day and he will look at them and say, blameless. What a privilege to pray in this way. So brothers and sisters, that's what I urge you to today. Let's pray for each other. Let's be a people at church who pray for each other. And so we come to the end of this letter that we've been studying for about six or so months, and it closes with these words. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, that, okay, that is a normal, culturally appropriate, non-sensual greeting in this culture, okay? That's basically an elbow bump, handshake, hug, whatever it be, okay? Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. In other words, don't leave anybody out. I want everybody to hear it. And then finally, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And it's with these words, with the grace of the Lord Jesus, that we too sign off from this study. And that is what I would like to pray over you now. So would you pray with me? Our Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for every single piece of it, like 1 Thessalonians, that you gave originally through your Apostle Paul and his cohorts, and that you sent to this little church in Thessalonica, living under persecution as brand new believers, holding on to their faith and and hope and love. And and Father, we now, 2,000 years later, get to reap the rewards, the benefits of these words. So Father, I pray even now, even going in the future, you would continue to use this book, these words in our lives. And, and more than anything, God, today, I pray that you would bring us and give us your peace. You are the God of peace, the God of shalom, the God who is whole and makes everything whole. And God, you are at work in us. And I pray that you would continue to work in each of these. Lord, for some of that, that is just continuing to draw them to you, to draw them to Jesus, perhaps for the first time in repentance and faith and newness of life. For many of us, God, it's just, it's just shaking off the dust and waking up to the life that we've already been given. And for others of us, God, it's just encouragement and perseverance. So God of peace, would you continue to make each of us whole, and holy and complete body, mind, soul, spirit. Would you work your work in us and make us each and every day more and more like Jesus? God, even when it feels like things will never go right, even when it feels like our entire life is is breaking apart, God, would you be the God that we hope in to put all things back together? You are the God who 
will say one, thing, one day, behold, I have made all things new, including us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name for your glory.